I mean, here's the kid who wasn't indifferent to acting, hated, hated acting, was terrified of acting. There I was ending up doing the lead role in the number one attended outdoor drama in the country. Where are the answers I see? Where are the hopes I need? Answer this for me. Help me to believe. Welcome back, dragons. Thank you so much for being with us today. Time's the most precious resource any of us have, and the fact that you've chosen to spend some of yours with us is something that we're very appreciative of, so thank you. Today we get to talk with licensed counselor, part-time actor, and friend of mine, Mark Foster. We met while we were both actors in the Great Passion Play in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, which, according to their website, happens to be America's number one attended outdoor drama. At that time, I was basically an extra who worked his way up to a Roman soldier part, and I was able to watch Mark from within the organization rise from a walk-on extra to playing the central figure in the show. I was also able to watch how the situation evolved and the challenges he ended up facing and ultimately overcoming. This is one of the main reasons I wanted to have him on the show, and he discusses it as we talk about his journey. We also talk about mental health and financial health and so many things in between. It's a really good episode, and I can't wait. Let's take a listen. Where are you from originally? Are you from Northwest Arkansas, where we met, or...? When you bump into people, it seems like most people are not originally from here. Um, originally. Did you do most of your growing up in Ohio or, and I don't know that location is all that important, but what I am curious about is how was your experience growing up? In other words, you know, today, uh, as you well know, being a therapist, uh, there are different challenges than there were when we were kids. I'm a real believer that environment has so much to do with how someone comes up in the world for lack of better terminology and so i always like to try to get a feel for the environment uh, of of anyone uh, so how was grade school for you in in high school with anger and also with the drug alcohol and dwi stuff is your culture what was your environment with friends family you know da 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 da, da so that your culture impacts you. Uh, and what's, what's normal in one place is kind of odd somewhere else. I, I lived in, for about 12 years in Ohio. We moved down to uh, Oklahoma and uh, lived in Owasso, uh, which now Garth Brooks lives there, and it's a very posh place. But when we lived there, it was, uh, I affectionately refer to it as little hell because I was a city kid. I mean, I lived in Columbus, Toledo, and then we moved. Oklahoma that, uh, I mean, in my yard, not just like in the city or in the state, in my yard, we had tarantulas, scorpions, poisonous snakes like copperheads. And it was like, oh my gosh, you know, it was like a crocodile dungeon. And uh, I was very much a fish out of water, hated, hated it, except I did love that I had a that my dad had gotten me when I was in fifth grade. And in Ohio, it was pretty much you can drive it around our one acre yard because, you know, we lived in the sub in Owasso. It was, oh, yeah, drive all over the subdivision, you know, all that, whatever. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, so freedom, you know, felt like Mel Gibson. So 
I was able to drive the motorcycle all over the place on these, you know, dirt roads and everything in Owasso where we lived. And, and that, that was my favorite memory of Owasso. But we moved to, uh, dad was vice president of Akron Coke and then president of Tulsa, vice president in Oklahoma bottling company, I think. Anyway, we moved to Vanita. Uh, that was also a small town population of like 7,000 people. And I remember when I was started driving my car around, people are waving at me. It's going to culture. And I know it's a long way to get there, but bear with me. And you're, you know, you're, people are waving at me, looking. I'm like, I don't think I know who that is. So I said to my dad, finally, I said, dad, all these people are waving at me when I'm out driving. Do they know who I am? I don't think I know who they are. Oh, no, son. They're just being friendly, you know. That's how it is in a small town, you know. Yeah, maybe they've been out on County Road 472 all morning, and you're only the third person they've seen this morning. So, I'm like, oh, okay. Once he explained it to me, I thought, well, that's really cool. That's nice. Uh, but it was completely foreign to me. I had no idea what people were doing because you certainly didn't drive around Akron, Ohio, like hi, 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 hi. You know, just stick your hand out the window and leave it there. You get carpal tunnel by the end of the day, you know. So uh, culture, what's what's normal in one area can be completely foreign somewhere else. And it's not that it's bad. It's just different and unfamiliar for you. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, and it's funny you should bring that up because I have a lot of family up on the East Coast, uh, New Jersey, Maryland area, and so forth. And every so often they would visit down in, in uh, northwest Arkansas. And we would be driving around and I would see, you know, somebody and we'd, I'd wave and they'd wave. And we'd nod the hat or whatever the case may be. And they kept saying, do you know that person? Do you know that person? You know? <laughs> I'm like, no, we're just being friendly. You know, it, it was completely foreign subject to them. So I can completely corroborate what you're talking about there. There's no two ways about that. You should have said, oh, that's my third cousin <laughs> twice removed there. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Mom and dad, did you have some uh, siblings? No, I remember child? when I was a kid, I wanted siblings. And I, I I don't know, I was like six or something. And, you know, you're pretty ignorant at like six or seven. or. And I, I told my mom, I said, well, I want, a, an old, I, I, well, not an older, I want a brother or a sister. And she said, well, we're working on it. We're trying. And I said, well, try hard. <laughs> Which, you know, in later years, I was like, ew, you know, I had no clue what I was saying at that time at the innocent young age of six or seven, but, but there you go. Nice. Yeah. So and now, and I happen to know your, your parents stayed together. And, and so, you know, you I guess you would say you had a, a pretty decent family life. Uh, family structure was intact. I'm what is now uh, exceedingly rare with the traditional nuclear family. Uh, yeah, me too. My, my parents are still together um, after all these years. In fact, at one point in high school, I felt a little left out because most of my friends had divorced parents and they got two Christmases and two birthdays and things like that. But today I'm very grateful for it. There you um, go. So now, dad, uh, dad passed away uh, March 27, right as the pandemic was gradually closing things down every single day at the hospital. And then at the hospice, they kept tightening the restrictions of, okay, now only this many visitors. Okay, now only that many visitors. Okay, no, no more visitors at the hospital. And that was when he passed away was in the midst of all that. And then mom is still uh, with us and she's in pretty good spirits, but she has uh, dementia and she's in a nursing home. She thankfully still remembers who I am and all that, but you know, some days are better than others for her and what she can remember. 
if I visited her earlier that day, half the time she won't remember, but she'll say, when you were three, you did da-da-da-da. So for her long-term memory is pretty awesome. Uh, the, you know, the short term and so is in. Eh. No. Yeah, that's well, that's good to hear. I mean, you know, you got to look for the positives where you can find them for sure. What I had to do so it didn't drive me crazy was I just said to my family, we can mourn what we no longer have or we can enjoy what we do still. Uh, my mom was uh, Italian, is Italian, uh, used to cook, uh, no longer does, of course. Uh, wonderful Italian. Then she no longer could. And I could you know, bemoan that and wallow in that or just say, well, you know what, I'm thankful that mom is still in good spirits and laughs at my jokes and is in positive and all that. And so we just try and focus on what we do have rather than what we don't. Yeah, I mean, focusing on what you can control and what you do have are really important pieces to finding a way to enjoy the existence you have. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so how, if you were going to define uh, your high school years, uh, good, uh, no, no challenges with bullying or any of that type of stuff, or it was, you know, cause it was different for us uh, than it is now. I, I, I get that. I understand that, you know, the kids today have a different challenge than we did. You would get in a fight with somebody when I was in school and, you know, you, you might roughhouse with them a bit and then the parents would get together and say, Hey, look, you guys solve this, you know, and then you'd have to be friends. You had no choice and kind of went about it. Uh, but, you know, now you have drive-by shootings with 12-year-olds. It's, it's just different. Um, so how, how was your high school experience? Pretty good. In fact, high school, that was the first time I went to uh, public school. I went to uh, private Christian schools all the way up until 10th grade. But in, uh, in Vanita, there were no private Christian schools. In Owasso, there wasn't either, but we were close enough to Tulsa that we went to, I went into Tulsa and went to church and school there. Yeah, I, yeah, I really enjoy, I've, I've got great friends uh, I still keep in touch with from high school. In fact, I was talking to a couple of them just as, and so I'm thankful for that. I, I got a funny story. I can, uh, bullying wise, uh, remember to ask me if I was funny. I'll tell you that in a minute. Um, bullying wise, I really didn't have any trouble, um, except for one guy. Oh man, he kept picking on me, picking. I'm like, what do I do to him? Uh, it was pretty much what I stood for. Where I lived at, uh, one of my friends said, Where do you live? And I said, Westwood. And he's like, Oh, you live in the rich part of town, uh, you know. And, uh, and this kid, I think, resented me for hating on someone because they're too thin, too fat too rich, too poor, whatever for your liking is wrong, whichever way you want to. This kid, uh, he was just hateful to me and picking. I remember one day he was like threatening to beat me up. I think we were in the auditorium and there was a, uh, thank goodness. Yeah. He was like a tall, a lot taller than me, tall, thin, uh, white kid. And thankfully there was this, uh, African-American kid, a star on the track team and whatnot else. And he was like, Hey man, you leave him alone, you know, or you have to deal with me. And I was like, Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. It's like it reminded me of that movie, The Bodyguard, back in the 70s. Like, thank you, you know. So that, that kept my kid off my back. But I remember years later, the doorbell rang. And I went to the doorbell, and I look out the peep. I went to the door, I looked out the peephole, and I'm like, holy crap, it's Eddie. 
the kid who's you know hates me and and wants to beat me up and stuff what's he doing ringing my doorbell you know and so i opened the door i'm like hello how are you yeah he was there with uh, a couple we knew from church, some friends of my dad, and apparently he was uh, he was a foster kid, and he, and they they had become his foster parents recently, and he came uh-huh. over because his parents were coming over. They were friends with my parents, and he was coming over to hang out because they were too, you know. And I'm like, oh my! And I thought, man, I hope I don't get you know beat up or something, but. Anyway, I just killed him with kindness. I was just nice to him and everything. And I found out more about him in his life. He was a foster kid and he had a traumatic childhood and, and horrible things and, and didn't have that support and everything. And things started making sense. Even though I was a high school kid, things started making sense at why he was the way he was and why he kind of acted towards me the way that he did. But I was just nice to him. And my dad had a billiard table, not me. Dad made sure to point out that's my billiard table. You can you can play on it, but it's my book. And so I played pool with Eddie and everything, and uh, and you know, and we had a good time, and it was fine. He said, you know, I was kind of embarrassed about coming here and everything after the way I treated you, but you know, you really, you're you're a much better Christian than I could ever be. And I'm like, ah, hey, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect by any means. So that was a interesting experience, and how that kind of came came around, did a 180 with uh, the one high school bully that I did have. Well, you know, I think that's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, that's actually a, a really interesting story because uh, of the way that it kind of all resolves itself. I, I remember there was a whole, you know, Twitter is a pretty vile place um, in a lot of ways. And uh, I don't frequent it a whole lot, but I do frequent it some. And there's been a lot of vitriol, um, is that the right word? I think so, in our political environment here in the U.S. for oh, yeah. a long time. Uh, but in the, in the last few years, it's really ramped up um, in, oh, in a way it. that I've never seen. But I take solace from watching, there was a whole Twitter thread um, where Sarah Silverman um, had been attacked by somebody and he was just vile towards her. And all she did was over and over and over again, extend an olive branch and, and, and provide love in, in that person's direction. And at the yeah. end of it, and it was long and drawn out, but at the end of it, he changed his perspective. And I would, I thought, huh? I mean, he 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 apologized and thanked her for bringing. And I just, you know, when when you see awesome. something like that, you you realize that yeah. conversations, hard conversations, are really important. We're not responsible uh, for other people's behavior. To get... We're responsible for our own. And that reminds me of uh, Chuck Norris's autobiography. I I just devoured that when I was in college. I think I read that in like twenty two hours. But Chuck Norris talked about how somebody came into his karate dojo one day and was just really just horribly disrespectful and hateful. And Chuck basically said he just killed the man with kindness. He did not respond to disrespect with disrespect. He kept being respectful and kind. And he said, finally, after the end of this conversation, this man said, you know what? You're all right. I thought you were going to be a real jerk, but you're a real nice guy. And uh, I love how Chuck did not respond uh, fire with fire, you know, and he, and he basically won the guy over at the end. Yeah, it's amazing yeah. how that can happen. It's like that. So college, let's, let's, let's get into that. Did you go directly from high school into college? Yeah, not, or, none of this gap you know? year crap we, we, that all we, these people are taking these days. I'm going to have a year to enjoy. Year to enjoy? 
oh my gosh, if I had spring break coming up, my dad would say, are you working? You got a week off. You should be working that spring break. You know, like, geez, dad, can I enjoy the week off? Nope. No, none of this going to somewhere tropical on spring break for me. So college, college was just something that was kind of expected. Before I get into college, I'll tell you about the funny, the funny thing. When I was in high school, I was in a pep rally and this, uh, I was a new student, had only been there about a month, 10th grade. And there was this uh, like black football player, I think athlete. Uh, he, was a, he was like well-known guy, awesome shape and uh, great athlete and a good guy and everything. And uh, he said, hey man, I know you. And I'm like, hi, I'm Mark, how are you doing? He's like, yeah, you that new gay kid. And I'm like, what? And, uh, and I'm like, somehow a rumor started floating around the high school that I was gay. And I'm like, where, where in the world did that come from? And when I thought back to it, uh, thought back, I'm like, how, how, what did I do or say that could give somebody that idea or, you know, someone's starting a rumor because whatever, they don't like where I live or what's that about? So. I played back in my mind where I could remember about earlier that week, somebody came up to me at my locker uh, in between classes and he said, hey man, I, 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 uh, I want to ask you a question. They're like, sure, okay, yeah. He's like, um, you know, are you funny? And I'm like, am I funny? And he didn't say like, hey man, I, I want to ask you a question. Or, you know, he didn't, he didn't, there was no condescension. There was no hate. It was just like, hey, I got a question, you know, what, what's one of your hobbies or this, you know, it, it totally seemingly innocuous and whatnot. And so, yeah, are you funny? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Um, I think I am. Uh, I try to be, you know, my friends think I am. And then from there, he's like, oh, okay, cool. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. And off he goes. And the next thing you know, it, it, you know like, hey, you're that new gay kid. And I'm like, uh, what? And so... No wonder I didn't get any dates in high school, you know. <laughs> well, you know, and that's interesting, too, because that I, I think a lot of times we miss context in, in our conversations these days. I think that's part of, of why we have such uh, such a, a challenge when we revisit our history, because they're especially with cancel culture and, and so forth. Um, again, going back to I think hard conversations are important to have. Uh, that was a very different time in high school than it is now, you know, same thing yeah. for me, you know, at that point in time, we didn't know a whole lot, really, it wasn't in the mainstream like it is now, we didn't know how to respect people's choices and their ways of lives and so forth. So yeah. during that time frame, uh, it was very easy for that to be a slur, right, you know, and, and be and be something that, that um, people would really oh, look yeah. down yeah. on. I mean, and so, uh, you know, that really is, um, yeah, at that at the context for that is important because it was a different setting um, than forty years later today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, one hundred percent different. Now you said it was kind of expected. Did did uh, what what uh, what route did you go? Yeah, I, it was I mean, just and it was kind of expected. Kind of, mine, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, that was just kind of like the expectation. Well, you are going to college. I mean, it doesn't necessarily matter what you get your degree in, but you know, you need to get an education. It'll open up more doors for you. Blah blah blah. Yada yada. I started college when I was 17, and it wasn't because I was brilliant or anything. Somehow I started school early and just always got pushed through, even though technically I think I didn't meet the correct 
age for the grade I was in. It's kind of like I should have been held back to, you know, because I started college when I was 17. Socially, I could do the work easier than deal with all the social stuff, I guess. that makes. I would have been much more ready for college and the responsibilities of being semi on my own and all that had I gone a year later when I was eight. So I, I started up at uh, SBU, Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri, and I majored in business administration because I didn't want to be one of those freshman students who were undecided. So I was like, I don't know what I want to do, but business is broad enough and can be applied to almost everything. So let's say business. And so uh, that's what I did. I majored in business. Yeah, and you um, finished there. You got your four year degree in, in business. Uh, no, um, I'll tell you, I was a decent student, but I was never awesome. And in these business classes, I was the best in my, literally the best, because if they post your grades by student number, you don't see everybody's, but you know which number is yours. And you're, I'm like, I've got the highest grade for the whole entire class. And I've never been the best at anything. So I was just like, wow, this is awesome. Unfortunately, as part of a business degree, you have to, of course, take accounting. And accounting, mm -hmm. I'd rather be hitting the head with a stick like a human pinata. I just hated it. I hated accounting. I got an F in principles of accounting. So I went down to intro to accounting, which helps you better understand it. And it's simpler, but it doesn't count for your degree. I got a C in that. So I passed it, went back up to take principles of accounting again, got another F. And I'm, and I, and I you know, as a Christian, as a person of faith, I know, you know, the Bible says uh, all things work together for good. Not all things are good. A lot of people misquote that verse, but all things work together for good for them that love God. And so I, I remember saying to the Lord, not as a snarky jerk or anything, but just a legitimate question, what, where is the good in this, God? I mean, seriously, where is the good in this? I've never been the best in my class at anything before. I'm A plus top of my business class, and I can't get through accounting. So now I can minor in business, but I can't major in business. Now what do I do? You know, where is the good in that? And, you know, man may make his plans, but God directs your steps. So I'm like, okay, all right, I, I got to find the equivalent of underwater basket weaving here. What, 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 what can I, I got to have a degree in something. So I was like, all right, speech communications. I hate public speaking. Uh, I had the intro class. I did okay. Didn't love it. Hate speaking in front of people. Hate getting up in front of people. But, you know, if I try, how can they fail me? So that's how I ended up in speech communications. And uh, I remember when I started my second speech class, I was, I mean, as objectively, <laughs> seriously, um, this is not false humility, uh, as objectively as possible, I was the worst in the class. Uh, virtually everyone had already had multiple speech courses. Uh, and I remember by the end of that class, I was so proud of myself because I felt like, okay, I'm not the best in this class, but I can hang with these guys. I'm in there with them performing about on their level. And I was so proud of that. And somewhere along the way, I guess you could say I got bit by speech communication. Same thing happened with my, uh, where he said speech just changed his life. Uh, going through that in college. So I ended up transferring down to John Brown University in Salem Springs because my parents moved to Salem Springs and so I could live at home and save money on room and board. It wasn't that JBU was any cheaper than SBU, but by not paying room and board, it was a whole lot cheaper. So 
that's where I finished up my degree at was uh, John Brown University in Salem Springs, Arkansas. And public relations, they didn't have speech communications, but the closest thing they had was public relations, which was a lot of advertising, marketing, speech communications, and so forth. I was going to ask, uh, have you had any challenges with, say, learning disabilities uh, or something like that that would have translated into uh, challenges in school? Um, I did have a lisp when I was a kid because I had tonsils that were swollen for like a year before they could operate when I was like four or five or something. So I had a lisp and I saw a speech therapist who worked with me on that. So I didn't have that. Anymore. By the way, did you know James Earl Jones got into drama to help? Uh, with his stuttering, I had actually heard that years ago. It's a great, a great story. I mean, that there's nobody better. <laughs> but I, I always hate acting and being in front of a crowd, and being in front of a group. And I, why? I mean, I guess it didn't bother me in elementary school so much. Maybe sometimes when you're younger, you're, I don't know, blissfully ignorant, or I don't know, you know, you don't feel the full weight of something. <laughs> The inhibitions aren't there because you don't know, right? You don't know somebody's going to ridicule you. You don't know that, uh, you know, somebody is going to be jealous of what you're doing and make fun of you for that. You know, you don't know how, you know, you just don't know any of the cynical piece. So why would you be? Why wouldn't it be fun to be in front of people? Why wouldn't it be fun to be in a play? Why wouldn't it be fun to do whatever it was as a group? Yeah, because... I hated all that. I hated all that. It probably didn't help that when I was in junior high and high school, I had really bad acne uh, on the scale of four out of five, at a scale out of five, five is the worst where you get the deep pitted acne. Thank goodness I did not have that. I had a, I was four, I was level four. It was bad, but not so bad that you'd be physically scarred and so forth. But that that'll do a number on your uh, self-confidence. I bet it uh, does. I, how, 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 how did you deal with that? Because uh, I dealt with some acne, not, not to that level, uh, but it, it's always been embarrassing for me. I've had, uh, when I was especially through probably my thirties, I would have blemishes that somebody called me crater face one time just because you know that kind of thing and so how how i mean obviously that had to be challenging to your self-confidence so did you have any methodologies for dealing with that or just like a kid you're just like i'm just going to keep going and not, not not think about it any more than i have to other than going to the dermatologist and treating it and just doing the best i could i mean i think i think god even used that because it gave me a heart for other people don't put down other people because of how they look or some deformity, or some whatever, perceived irregularity. I was sensitive to not making comments about people, not to get in the political arena or whatnot, but I remember when Bill Clinton was president and people were picking on his teenage daughter and saying she looked awkward or goofy. And I'm like, don't do that. You know, don't, don't do that. You know, and I didn't even vote for Clinton, but I don't care. That's just a human issue. Don't do that. Don't treat people that way. You know, that's awful. So I, that gave me a more sensitive heart for people. Uh, so I think God even used that in a positive way in my life. But I, I didn't want to do acting, didn't want to do public speak. Well, uh, then I went through college, got used to the public speaking part. When I graduated, it was in 1991. It was in the middle of the recession. And nobody was hiring. Walmart had a hiring freeze. Tyson had a hiring freeze. J.B. Hunt had a hiring freeze. And I'm like, really? It took me half a decade to get my degree, and now I can't use it. So I'm trying to get a job. I'm praying I can find something. What was interesting was, you remember Don Berrigan, the artistic director of The Great Passion Play? I do. And when I would go over there and see my parents and, and worked over there and everything, 
Don would say, hey, you should, uh, you should be in the play. Why don't you come on out? I'm like, ah, thank you, but I don't really think acting's my thing. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm praying, uh, God, give me a job. I need a job. You know, and the play was a part-time job and a full-time job. It was a part-time paid job. Second time I bumped into Berrigan a couple weeks later, hey, why don't you come out and be in the play? I'm like, oh, no, thanks. That's, uh, I'm public speaking. Yeah, okay, that's my thing now. But acting, I don't know about that. It's not really my thing per se. And I go back to God, please give me a job, God, please, come on. And the third time Berrigan came up to me and said, hey, you really should be in the play. I go, oh, okay, Lord, I hear you. <laughs> and, I, and I said, yes, yes, thank you very much. I think I will be in the play. And I joined the cast of the play being an extra and then being a you know, street person and then a Roman soldier. And I mean, within a week, I had a full-time job. Now, mind you, I hadn't had a job in like four months. And I'm trying to open up a door. God's like, hello, I've got this one wide open. Finally, when I go through that door, then the other full-time door pops open within days. So now, and that's, uh, that's, it reminds me of the, uh, I sent you a, a helicopter, a boat and a, right. You know, I, that's, that's one of those stories that I, that I, I love to retell because I, I, I think it's so poignant and that's exactly what you're talking. I mean, that's almost exactly the same story, uh, in regards to that. So that's about the time that, that we met. Uh, was where, because I was working at the Great Passion Play in Eureka Springs, uh, I had just gotten done with my college years, and there were a number of us. Yeah, you look like you're in one of the cast dressing rooms right now with your wardrobe. <laughs> I know, right? You can you can see all that back there. Moving on in, in regards to that, yeah, your your dad was involved with the Passion Play, right? Was, was he involved ahead of time before you got your job? He got to there, he got there here before I did. He was executive director, president, whatever, CEO, I think it was actually the actual title, title, but they they brought him in because the play was like 30 days away from the foreclosure, the play, the grounds, the LM Smith Foundation and everything. And he his he'd been in business for years. Um, I mean, he was ordained as a pastor and preached at some small churches and stuff as a bivocational pastor, da-da-da-da, and all that. But one of his specialties was taking a business and turning it around. And in fact, he went to, uh, I think it was Memphis Pepsi, which had never made a profit in its history, and he turned it around within six months' time and had it making its first ever profit. So they called him in to help turn it around, and within five years' time, he doubled the, the value of the property from $2.5 million to $5 million. But anyway, he was there. There was kind of an issue with nepotism at the time. It's, it's one thing if there are people who have education in their jobs and background experience or something. If they're if you're just kind of filling a job with family, that's not good. My dad did not want to hire me for a job, which I had a degree in to be the PR advertising marketing director there. Because he's like, ah, it's nepotism. I really don't want to go down that road. There's kind of an issue with that at this time. I don't want to add to that. But after about a year, he's like, I keep losing people to Branson because all the people would use the play as a jumping stepping stone rather to go to Branson and do the Mel Tillis Theater or Shoji Tabuchi or whatever and do advertising for them. So he's like, I know you're not going to leave me in six months' time. Uh, I finally got hired. Actually, I got hired on as the assistant director because I said, listen, I appreciate that a lot, and I've got a degree for that. I've got no experience in that yet. And jumping into that position as the director and having a quarter of a million dollar budget at that time to utilize 
when I'm brand spanking new, uh, I said, I would appreciate if you could keep who you've got now as director. I come in as assistant director, learn from them for like six months or so, and then make that transition. And that was awesome. And that's Glenn Art did and helped train me to, to do that. So anyway, so that's how I ended up doing that. Uh, I ended up doing the play. And I remember when you, you could audition, you could ask to do any role in the play, but the handbook said there's one role that uh, they come ask you. They're interested in you playing that role. And you can't just ask to audition for it. And that was the Christ role. And I remember when uh, Don Berrigan came to me and said, hey, you know, uh, let your hair grow out and uh, you know, let's see, uh, maybe we'll have you do the Christ role. And I was like, what? I mean, that wasn't even on my radar. I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? You know, I mean, you're in every scene or on your way to the next scene. There's dialogue on literally over 90 pages of script for the Christ actor out of like 125 pages of script, over 90 pages of script dialogue. I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, I didn't think I could do that, but it was kind of like, what you were talking about, people believed in you when I listened to your story. People saw something in you and said, I believe in you. You can do this. And I told them, I said, hey, guys, honestly, I don't know if I can do this or not. But I, what I will promise you is I will give it 110%. I will give it my all. I'm going to rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. I'm going to do, I'm going to give it my best shot. But I honestly want you to tell me when it comes time to here's your shot. Let's look at it. You're auditioning. You're doing the thing. If it's not working, please tell me it ain't working. Do not let me go out there and make a fool out of myself or worse, Jesus, doing this part. If I can't play it, I don't want to do it. So please be honest with me. And that's the deal I'll make with you. I'll give it 110%, but you let me know. And eh, thank you, but it's just not there or what. Berrigan and them believed in me and gave it a shot. And, uh, and it worked out. Something, I mean, I never dreamed I would end up there. And, you know, who says God doesn't have a sense of humor? I mean, here's the kid who wasn't indifferent to acting, hated, hated acting, was terrified of acting. There I was ending up doing the lead role in the number one attended outdoor drama in the country. And it's like, how did I get here? I mean, you know, but, you know, the Bible says that God delights in showing his strength in the weakness of others. And who better than a kid who absolutely hated acting and was terrified of it? You know, so it's like, if I was any good at that, I think that's so God could say, that was my doing, not you. You weren't like a, a Juilliard grad or an, a natural. I was anything from an acting natural, that's for sure. But I got bitten by the acting bug then and then just kind of continued to work on honing my craft over the years and doing different community stuff and some local uh, regional commercials and stuff like that for radio and yeah, so there you go. You know, the Passion Play was an interesting moment in time for me. Uh, it was, uh, I guess, it really my only real acting job, if you will. I mean, the, one, the ones that I got paid for, <laughs> anyway. And it was, but it was very different than what you consider acting, uh, even in theater or in movies, uh, because uh, there's so much lip syncing and timing that goes to it, and and all those different pieces. So it was a little different, but it was it was it was an experience that I really enjoyed. Uh, I don't remember how many seasons I was there, four or five. I stayed there until they fired your dad, and when they when they fired your dad, that was the end of it for me. I've, I've always taken things very personally and so forth, and and I always really liked your dad. I thought your dad did wonderful things uh, at the Passion Play, and I, I had a lot of respect for him, and I felt like he was treated unfairly, and so I chose never to go back. Well, thank you. 
Yeah. In a, in a nutshell, I mean, it was basically, like I said, they were less than 30 days away from total foreclosure on, on not just the play, but the grounds. And, uh, and he came in and doubled the net worth from two and a half million to $5 million in five years time. And then it was kind of like, okay, thanks, Bob. We can take it from here kind of a thing. So I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So anyway, that, but yeah, it's all water in the bridge. You know, what, what men, men intended for evil, God used for good from that. And then, you know, and, and dad even said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and step down then. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to make a big stink about, it. I mean, you, you just, you know, clearly you want to go in another direction to your thing. So I'll just, uh, step down and walk a bit. Don't take it out on my son or whatever. He does his job and he's good at it. And they, they, they agreed. Okay. And then about a year later, it was, uh, oh, we're restructuring the play. And it was like, oh, who else is being restructured? Uh, oh, just you. <laughs> so for the play and up top and uh, the advertising job. But again, with, you know, Joseph's brothers kind of sold him into slavery. But a lot of good came out of that in the end, right? And, and if, I, if I were still at the play, I wouldn't have moved back to the Northwest Arkansas area and ended up going into uh, – counseling at John Brown. And I've wanted to get a master's degree in counseling for like about seven or eight years at that point. My wife said, listen, you're not a little kid who's like this year, I want to be an astronaut. The next year, I want to be a fireman. And the next year, I want to be a baseball player. She's like, every year, I hear the same thing from you. I want to be a therapist. I want to be a therapist. I want to be a therapist. She's like, you go do it. And uh, John Brown had their program. I was familiar with John Brown. I loved them. They're a smaller school thought of huge schools like the U of A or OU, where all my high school friends went to, just kind of overwhelmed me, uh, just filled me with anxiety. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like a small city. I'll get lost there, you know? So I absolutely love John Brown. I went back there to get my master's in counseling. I wouldn't have been able to do that if I'd still been over there in, uh, in Berryville. So uh, I was able to achieve that. So you went to uh, you went to John so, Brown and and you you got your master's in in counseling and uh, then I'm sure you did an enormous amount of internship work to get your hours to be able to do that. Uh, so once you left the play, did you go directly into school uh, for that? I mean, basically, and then uh, I mean, what did you do in the? How did you keep food on the table? Kind of thing. Did you do odd jobs? What, what did you do, man? Um. Like, did you keep going down the marketing track at that point? When the play said, thanks, take your time, be out by the end of the day, that was two weeks to the day before Christmas. So it was like, oh, wow, Merry Christmas. And so forget job hunting oh. at Christmas time. It just doesn't happen. Uh, but I, I just took odd jobs, uh, mowed yards. I put in carpeting at the mayor's office in Rogers. Uh, I just helped out with some different things. Took some distance learning, Christian counseling courses. And was like, yep, yep, I do enjoy this. It was kind of like a precursor for me to, yeah, I want to go do the JBU thing. So I did odd jobs for about eight months. Lived, you know, my parents and I, we bought a house in Rogers. All lived together. I don't know, a year, a short period, a somewhat short period, I guess, a year or something. And then I started work at a nonprofit CCOA, Credit Counseling of Arkansas, and '97. Uh, Went and started grad school at John Brown in '98. Yeah, so I was working full-time at CCOA and then going to grad school in Salem Springs. Yeah, now that I've graduated, they've got like a Rogers campus that's like a mile and a half or so by my house. I've literally jogged past there before. It's like, oh, you're killing me, you know, rather than an hour and a half round trip. I could have just gone right here for those classes and, you know, they, they built that after I graduated, but, oh, well, there you go. So I, I feel you. I feel you, man. When I started at my most recent uh, position, uh, they, they didn't have any, any time available off for fathers 
um, who have kids. And uh, it just so happened that, that I moved to this new position uh, in, at the 1st of August, and my my littlest one was due in December. And so I didn't have any vacation time or any of that really at, at all. Um, <laughs> and then two years later, they're like, oh, we're going to give all new fathers X amount of weeks off to spend and bond. And you're like, oh. Can you make that retroactive? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and so you have that moment where you're like, oh, but at least I'm glad that other people have that now and they don't have that same struggle, right? But uh, but yeah, there's there's always those little those little fun pieces of life to make you go, huh, hi. Interesting. Exactly. But but even that was productive because, you know, I put my uh, my notes from class on audio cassette and then would listen to them to and from class when I was driving back and forth and so that's hour and a half of basically extra studying time so even that ended up being productive yeah oh yeah yeah I think that's I have a real um the uh learning disability in regards to reading it's very hard for me to read and in fact anything that I read book wise will put me to sleep within minutes uh, with the exception of technical manuals for whatever reasons I can stay wide awake for that but everything else puts me right to sleep so there were a lot of books I wanted to read throughout my life that I just couldn't with the invention of the audiobook and me having an hour commute each way to my job which is pretty much normal for me I've gotten more books read in the last few years, you know, and, uh, and I kind of miss my commute now. I've been working from home since March. And so I don't get to, you know, I was reading an audio book a week, man, you know, and now it's, you know, down a little bit. So yeah, you can always make those things productive. There you go. You went to CCOA. So that now, uh, that's, is that, that's credit counseling of, of Arkansas. Yeah, we pretty much just brand it CCOA now, kind of like KFC used to be Kentucky Fried Chicken, but they just kind of go with KFC. Uh, the big reason why is because we would work events and have a display and it would say credit counseling of Arkansas and people would say credit counseling. Oh, I don't need that and walk off. And it's like, wait, we do so much more, you know, and uh, or Arkansas, because here we, you know, our home office, our main office is in Fayetteville. Uh, we've also got one in Bentonville, one in Fort Smith. So we're right on the line almost. So we'd have people who were like, oh, well, you know, I, I work in Arkansas, but I live in Oklahoma or Missouri, so you can't help me. And it's like, oh, wait, we can, we can. We're not just Arkansas. So so that's one reason why we just kind of brand CCOA. But yeah, we've been helping people this year. It's our 25th year. I'm laughing because we had some big plans uh, planned for our 25th celebrations for people to come to. And eh, I think you can guess what happened there. Oh, so you've been working so with them since what, 97? Is that what you said? That's that's a good long stint. So what uh, what attracted you to them at the time? Was it just that there was a job going towards the the area that you wanted to? Um, I'd always had an interest in personal finances. I remember being a kid and saving money, and so I'd always had an interest in personal finance. I would say I was in the I don't know top ten twenty percent of teenagers who were interested in personal finances and actively doing something about them and having goals and blah blah blah. So. So that appealed to me. I remember even seeing a billboard one time driving down the highway on uh, through Northwest Arkansas and seeing a billboard for CCOA and saying, I bet that would be a fun place to work. And boom, like a, a year or less later, you know, there I am working there. 
that's a, a funny way that those things tend to work out. So it seems like a good fit. Now you you got your your count. So you do more than just that now, right? I mean, you've you kind of branched out into other areas. Uh, you still work with CCOA, but you have other things that you do as well now. I got certified as a uh, financial counselor while I was at CCOA, and then I got certified as a financial educator at CCOA. Basically, had to give up my financial counselor certification because you got to do jump through a whole lot of hoops every year to keep it, and I just didn't have the time anymore because I ended up becoming the director of uh, financial education and marketing, handling advertising, marketing, PR, and the financial education that we did. And so it was like, uh, so I, my focus had to shift over to that. And I, a year after I started CCOA, was when I went to John Brown, and did that. And I'm a big believer in oftentimes in life you can have your cake and eat it too. And I love CCOA, loved our mission, loved how we help people with money, budgeting, credit, debt, financial issues, housing, and da-da-da-da. And I love the team. I mean, it really is like a family. And the average person's been there like 17 years now or so. Yeah. And uh, and so my my boss at the time said, yeah, you know, you don't have to leave. I mean, you're welcome to stay on full-time here if you want, or if you want to work here part-time if you want. He was big on, if I have the right people, I would love to keep you in some capacity. He was great about that. And um, so I was like, well, you know what? I get, uh, yeah, I, lo I love what we do, love the team here. And so I think I'm just going to stay here full-time and then part-time I will work doing uh, counseling. And, uh, and my counseling, one of my counseling professors who became my supervisor when I started out first being licensed, you have a supervisor for the first 3,000 hours that you counsel that you pay to go see every so often. She said, you know, it really is a good thing that you're just doing it part-time right now because she said, you're dealing with DHS cases. We had a contract to see DHS and there was some abuse and I mean, just some dark stuff and some sad, challenging stuff that you're dealing with. And she's like, you know, that would be really hard to do full-time. Uh, so it's good, I think, that you're doing that only part-time and then I had started up some private practice counseling to see people for uh, dealing with stress coping, anxiety, anger issues, communications, couples, parenting, relationship issues and conflict resolutions, uh, and drugs and alcohol too, like uh, relapse prevention and, uh, and so forth. Too. Well, I remember that you did a lot of training. Like I, I, I remember, uh, you know, even though we as we had discussed before the podcast, you know, you and I haven't, haven't really caught up in a lot of years. Uh, but I always remember that you were always busy with training and education and trying to keep up with certs and, and this and that. And I just kept thinking, man, does that guy ever sleep? Uh, because man, you, you, because just to be a counselor, you have so many hours you got to do, but you know, you've, you've done <laughs> that in spades. Uh, how has, and this actually wasn't where this question was going, but how has it been trying to do a work-life balance with as much training uh, and, and so forth as, uh, as you had to go through? Um, yeah, boy, it's challenging to say the least. One big thing I would do, I mean, I just found it to be the, I don't know if there was an ideal solution, but it was how do I best make this work? What's the least worst option? Uh, I would slight myself. I wouldn't get eight hours of sleep a night. I might get six to seven, seven and a half maybe. Um, I would not take up time consuming hobbies like golf. <laughs> Forget it. I'm not going to go blow a Saturday or a half a Saturday. I'm not, no. 
Um, so I would, because I, I wanted, I wanted to keep my focus on my, my faith and, uh, family and friends. So I, yeah, so that was, that was one way that I did it. Another way I did it was I, I, with my counseling work, uh, I had a lot of flexibility, uh, to hours wise to see clients whenever I wanted to see them. So I would try to schedule clients when my wife was going to be working anyway. So I would be busy when she was going to be busy and then I would be free when she would be free that kind of thing. Oh, that's, that's really helpful um, for sure. I'd like to circle back around to the DHS stuff for just a minute um, because we'll circle away. Uh, it, it, okay. So for me, uh, I went through EMT school years ago uh, and thought maybe I'll, I'll go into the medical field. Uh, and I quickly learned that I am what would be classified as an empath. I, I feel other people's pain in a very real way. Um, and so I remember being in, in an ambulance. We picked up this girl who had a broken leg from a car accident. And I was just riding, just learning, just riding along, you know. And the patient looked up at me and said, are you okay? You're white as a sheet. <laughs> that should have been the moment that I knew it, it wasn't. Yeah. But anyway, so, so things like that are very sure. challenging for me because I, I take that stuff on real personally. It's been something I've had to work on some, uh, but so I guess what I wanted to ask was what did you learn? What did you take away from the work that you have done or are, are currently doing with DHS, um, uh, kids and, and people, what, uh, was there anything, I don't know, any insight or anything along those lines? How do you keep it from breaking sure. your heart? How, yeah. How, how do you keep it from doing that? And did, you know, did you learn any lessons? Uh, did you learn anything that you took away from that? Do you're like, Oh, I've seen how this has impacted these people this way. I want to make sure that the way I impact others, uh, is, is, is more helpful. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm not sure if I have a fully feathered question, but don't do math kids. <laughs> I second that and third it, please don't do math. That I've had a lot of people say, man, I could not handle that. I could not see the things that you see. I could not hear the things that people tell you or what they've been through and the trauma and the, da, 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 da. I don't know how you do it. And, um, and I can be, kind of an empath as well. I, I mean, you may be more so, but the way that I dealt with that, my approach was I had to look at it. If I was dealing with someone who'd been abused, who'd been their spouse, you know, beat the crap out of them, like they were Mike Tyson or something or whatever it might be. The way I approached it is, so it didn't break my heart. I, I didn't cause them that pain. I'm not the one who abused them. I'm here to help. So I had to focus on, I'm, I'm here to help. That pain and all that stuff happened before me and by someone else other than me. I'm here to help. Uh, so that's my outlook and how I approach it. If I didn't approach it like that, yeah, it would probably be just overwhelming. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Uh, so now you, uh, with, with the counseling stuff, I mean, that seems to be something that you really enjoy. That seems like, do you feel fully settled in career are you looking to do something you know different or expansive i love variety i absolutely love variety if you put me on a factory line putting together a widget 
every day, I would go bonkers inside of a month. I mean, I crave variety. So I get to be working at a nonprofit as a financial educator and uh, advertising marketing PR. I get to be, uh, you know, a professional counselor and uh, help people that way and then teach these classes through anger management and uh, of anger management and DUI classes and stuff like that. So I love all that variety and it really keeps me going. But one thing I didn't, a kind of important thing I left out was I got into counseling really because of being a client of going to counseling for anger, for anger and, uh, and then also at one point depression when I was in college. Uh, and kind of like a kid who busts up his knee and then has knee surgery and physical therapy and then later says, I want to be a knee surgeon or I want to be a, a physical therapist. That completely resonates with me because I, that was the, literally the reason why I decided to go do any EMT school training at all was because I broke my neck when I was in high school. And, the you know, the EMTs were just so good. You know, I mean, I, I, I broke my, my, my seventh cervical vertebrae and had it, had it been the sixth or higher, I might not be walking, uh, you know, it's one of those things. And so, and, you know, I, I was so thankful for, for Dwayne Hoppus and, and that crew um, that picked me up uh, because I still have full motion and all that kind of stuff. And so that was one of the reasons why I thought, you know what, that's, a, that's not only an honorable thing to do, it's a great thing to, you know, be able to help people and so forth. So I, I completely understand why, you know, that might, uh, you know, trigger you into that. I, I think more people should have counseling. I think more people should do therapy. Um, you know, I've, I've done uh, therapy a number of times throughout my life and it's always been something that's been incredibly helpful and I think that having a, a non-partial person to listen to what you have to say even even if it isn't uh, even if they don't have answers but just being there to hear and listen man that's such an important thing and and I, I think we do our society in the US a disservice by not having better access for people to get into therapy, whatever the therapy may, may be. Uh, you know, there was a real stigma around it when we were growing up, more so now than it is now, for sure. Uh, and, you know, so I, I grew up going to a private school that, you know, said therapists were, were not, they, they weren't good to go to. Like the, the school I went to was a private Christian school and they said, and, and I, I would ask them and I would say, hey, but what about this? And they're like, oh, that's different. That's Christian counseling. That's okay. But therapy is not okay. And, and so there, there was a lot of that type of baggage to overcome to be able to say, I, I need, I need to, to talk to somebody, you know, and I, I, I've, I've been open about this in the past. So this isn't a new revelation, but, you know, I did try to commit suicide at one point in my life, literally tried to do it. And, you know, had it not been for a belt snapping, I wouldn't be here. And that, that is the reality. And it's weird because now looking back and realizing the, the place that I was in in that moment, it was all in my head. Once I got out of that moment and I, and I was able to, to think with a clear head again, I thought, well, what was I doing? Why was I doing that? This doesn't make sense, you know? Uh, and I've never struggled with it again since then uh, because, I guess, because of that experience and coming through it. But had I taken that, that 
place, uh, and my mother would call it a place, that place where I was in my mind and gone to a therapist or someone to just talk to about it, uh, I might not have gone down that path. And, and so I, I find that therapy is one of those things, um, whether it's, you know, financial therapy or, or you know, personal therapy or, or whatever the terminology is that I don't know man, I'm all for it. I think we need more of it. And you're in this all the time. So do, do you see the lack of access to counseling uh, as, as, a, as a challenge the same way I type of see it, kind of see it? Or what is your viewpoint from the inside looking out? Oh, sure. I mean, I probably have people contact me every week who say, hey, um, you know, do you or do you know of someone where I can get counseling for free or extremely low cost. And the reality is you're taking up an hour of a professional's time. Now with a doctor, of course you're getting a doctor, uh, but you, know, you might see a doctor for five minutes. Uh, but for a therapist, you're seeing a therapist for an hour. And therapists, you've got your licensing fees and your continuing education that's not free. And you've got your you know, insurance mm -hmm. you have to get and da 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 da, da. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard to find therapists willing to do much pro bono work. I mean, some do, uh, or low cost. So, yeah. Just because I'm curious, because I don't know mm -hmm. what would be defined as low cost. And sure. I'm sure that that's different based on your geographic area, the socioeconomic area, all those different pieces. Uh, you know, what, what would be a, a, what would we considered low cost? I'm using air quotes, folks, uh, low cost. Uh, it, well, my standard rate is $170 an hour. So I, uh, we've been on this podcast for about an hour. So I tell you, you owe me $170, but, uh, <laughs> I probably owe you more. <laughs> it's uh, it it it's nice to be your own boss and have a sliding scale. And uh, I remember one time there was a lady who had cancer. Just found out she had cancer, and she's like, "I don't know if I can afford, you know, whatever I was mm -hmm. charging at the time." This is many years ago, and I said, "I I, I think I said uh, I said just don't don't even worry about that. Just just come on into the office. You don't owe me anything. Just." Uh, you know, just, just come on in because I just wanted to support her. And it's, what's nice is if I was working for an agency, they'd be like, you can't do that. you got to charge her the standard blah, blah, blah an hour, you know, or she has to have insurance. So in my private practice, it's like I can just say, hey, come on in, you know, I, don't worry about it. Um, mm -hmm. But, oh, uh, but to answer your question, what is considered a low rate? Uh, probably standard rate would be anywhere from 150 to 200 an hour maybe on average 170 to 180 and I know that sounds high but again it's $180 or I'm sorry it's an hour of a professional's time and we've got all kinds of licensing fees and credential fees and and, and uh, blah 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 insurance and it's just it's expensive and um, but I would say uh, I will see therapists seasoned therapists who oftentimes some of them will say uh, I'll give you a sliding scale rate of $80 or $90 or $100, which can still be expensive for many people. Uh, it, is, it is an issue being affordable. And I see a lot of people these days who will say, well, I've got insurance because I take Blue Cross Blue Shield and some others. 
I've got insurance, but I haven't met my deductible yet. And my deductible is $5,000. Mine's more than that. Yeah. And it's all out of pocket and I can't really afford $170 an hour. And, you know, uh, so that that's, that's an, an obstacle for many people as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting too, right? Because it isn't just one thing. It isn't just the money. Uh, sometimes people don't go to therapy because they're worried uh, about finding who they really are. Uh, you know, they've been hiding for so yeah. long and, and there've been so many challenges uh, that, you know, it's, it's easier to not. But I love, either. I love this saying, I agree. I love the saying, if you always do, it's a little bit of a tongue twister, but if you always do what you've always done, then you'll always be you've always been. I think that's absolutely true. What kind of, I mean, we're going to wrap it all up here. We've been talking for a while and I do want to be cognizant of your time. So do you have, uh, if you were going to tell me uh, a couple things that somebody can do um, to try to make their financial situation better based around their credit and your credit counseling stuff, what are some, what are a couple steps that, that we should take to better that uh you know what would what would be the top two or three things that you would say do this and this and this and go from there i just came across the stat on a financial webinar today that said 53 percent of adult americans don't have an emergency savings fund they're using credit cards as emergency savings and credit cards of course that's money you don't have number one number two like we've seen before during the great recession People might count on those credit cards to use as an emergency fund should an emergency pop up. But those credit card companies, when the economy goes south, they tighten up their credit line. So you might have had a $5,000 credit line on the credit card. Then you receive a notice in the mail or email saying, uh, we've lowered your limit down to 1000 And you're like, well, I, wouldn't, I needed that. You know, that was my emergency fund. So uh, one of the biggest things people can do if they haven't already gotten one is to establish an emergency savings fund because it's really not a question of will you ever have an emergency do you have an emergency fund so that you'll be prepared for one when it pops up that's important automatic deposit is a way to do that honestly the best my this is my own you got to find what works for you my best savings tip that works for me is now i do have some accounts at our best bank one of the pluses of our best bank is there's five of them on every corner, right? Um, I don't know about where you're at, but here in Arkansas, there's just, they're everywhere. So it can be very convenient. But I found I was taking money out of savings all too easily. So I was like, okay, I need to find a primary savings account at a bank that does not have 500 branches in town and is not close to my house. And I will not get a card debit card for that account. It's just going to be purely a savings account. I'll have money automatically deposited into it. And it's going to be a pain in the rear if I have to drive 20 minutes across town to go and get the money out. But if there's an emergency, I can get it out. But it's it, it made it harder for me. So I wouldn't frivolously go get it out. And that single strategy has personally worked the best for me. It may not for someone else, but that's really worked for me. Great. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the tip, man. Um, so I can go ahead and wrap it up. I appreciate, I appreciate your time. Thank you for, for sharing uh, your journey with us to the, you know, to this point. Uh, I'd love to have you back again, uh, at some point and, and maybe we can talk through some more specifics about counseling and, and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, uh, some sure. of those, maybe some more relevant topics to what's going on today. Um, like some of the stuff we talked about, you know, off, off 
the off air. Um, is there anything that you would like to share with the audience before uh, before we call it a day? I always like to let you have, you know, if there's anything that you feel like you'd like to share with the audience, you know, any topic, whatever, um, I'm just gonna let you do that. Oh, wow. See, they're not all softballs, just most of them. <laughs> I would say, you know, one of the things I've learned in life is if you really wanna have an impact on people, reach out to them when they're down. Everybody can reach out to them when they're up and times are good and they just won this award or got, uh, you know, this happened or that happened, da, 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 da. But when they're hurting, when, when things are going wrong and, and they're facing some kind of a challenge, typically 90% or more of the people, it seems like, seem to disappear. And that person feels even more isolated and alone. And I see if you really want to have, if you really want to make the biggest impact on people, reach out to them when you know they're going through a tough time. Say, hey, man, I was just thinking about you, you know, praying for you and your family. What can I do for you? Not, and I've also learned not to say, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. Because typically people don't want to do that and put you out and in uh, imposition and that kind of thing. So I've learned to say, what can I do for you? How can I uh, help with this or that or, you know, um, so it's almost like a given and accepted. Yes, I will do something for you. Tell me what your specific need is and I'll be able to help. And people that really resonates with people when you reach out to them when they're really hurting and with that ever a genuine compliment a kind word and offer to help with something or just do something nice without even being asked surprise them with something um, that really impacts people I actually did recently uh, a pandemic care package it was kind of half tongue-in-cheek you know, I, and this goes back to when I was dealing with depression in college. I finally just got sick and tired of being sick and tired and looking at the glasses half empty. Now I see it's half full. And like Abraham Lincoln said, how happy is a man going to be? Probably as happy as he makes his mind up to be. So I seen the humor and everything. And I look on the lighter side. So kind of tongue in cheek pandemic care package, you know, and I included a roll of toilet paper and a bottle of water, you know, which can serve a functional purpose, of course, but it was kind of tongue in cheek to have that in there. But, uh, and then it had like protein bars, peanuts, trail mix, just odds and ends like that. And it had a, uh, it's, and it had a note on an index card that just said, hey, you know, we love you guys. We're thinking about you and been praying for you guys during this pandemic. And on the back had a Bible verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, which said, encourage one another. And so I had these, pandemic care packages and gave them around to know, probably about two dozen people. And man, I mean, it's just a simple thing. You know, that's the kind of thing if you were a teenager, if you were in college, you might've taken for granted if you received one of those. But I think adults, it's kind of so rare now. You really appreciate that. When I gave that to my pastor's wife, she was practically in tears. And I thought, wow, I mean, I didn't give her a diamond ring or a fur coat or, you know, uh, she was like, thank you so much. That's just, it, but it's encouraging to people. In fact, another friend I did that to, uh, who's uh, my banker too, uh, he posted about that on Facebook and said, you know, this was really encouraging to me and just really lifted me up. So don't underestimate um, the power of, of being positive and kind to someone. Uh, when I was younger, I used to think it had to be some huge gesture or some huge gift or huge, it doesn't. It just has to be sincere, just has to be genuine, reach out to people 
And man, it makes a bigger impact than you know. That's great. Well, we'll definitely leave that here. Thank you so much for being a part of it, for coming on Plain Ordinary Dragon and, and talking with us. I, I really hope My we pleasure. get to hear it again at some point uh, in the not-too-distant yeah. future. So thank you so much. So many interesting things Mark has to share. You know what I love most? You can tell how much he cares for other people, how much empathy he has for his fellow human. While we didn't discuss it on this episode, Mark and I are diametrically opposed in some of our beliefs when it comes to politics and religion. He is a Christian. I am an agnostic. But we can still have civil discussions, hard discussions about these beliefs, because at our core we value people, we value each other, and while we might disagree in the logistics of how we get from here to there, we're able to find common ground, respect, and care for each other. I want to point this out because we don't have to live in a polarized society afraid to talk about the hard things in life. We can choose to find the common ground and build a solid foundation that respects everyone. I also wanted to point out a few things that caught my ear from this episode. The biggest takeaway for me was when opportunities present themselves, take advantage of them. You never know where or what the part-time gig or job outside of your chosen field will ultimately lead to. I took a job as an information technology field tech, and I got the opportunity to work on a national presidential campaign uh, a few years later as a direct result. Where will your path lead? You never know until you take a step. The other thing, which kind of goes hand in hand with the last point, uh, Mark, when he was working to keep food on the table for his family, he wasn't too proud to do whatever work was available at the time. Let me tell you, laying carpet is not an easy job, folks. That shows us just how willing he is to be humble in whatever his circumstances are. Sometimes the path out of the maze isn't the one that looks like the right path at that time. If you want to get in touch with Mark, we have links in the show notes to check out his counseling practice and to check out CCOA as well. Uh, and, And I want to thank Mark once again for spending the time with us today. I want to thank you for spending it with us too. You know, without you, I'm just a guy talking into a microphone. So thank you. And as always, remember, you might be plain and you might be ordinary, but you're a dragon and you can do amazing things. And we just can't wait to hear your voice in this world. Where are the answers seek? Where?